Hi, I've got my party shirt on. Uh, thanks, Mum. Um, my mum got this for me quite some time ago. I've just been waiting for the right occasion. Uh, it's got some flowers on it. It's spring. We're celebrating. Actually, I'm, I'm celebrating me. Um, I'm also wanting to celebrate you today. And there'll be more of that in just a moment. But um, Jerome Dias, Associate Minister at St Mark's. Um, and um, last week, our Senior Minister, Andrew, uh, began our series on Titus. Um, Paul's letter to Titus, and um, I loved where he started his message. Um, he shared that famous story of G.K. Chesterton um, responding uh, to the question posed by a London newspaper. This was sometime in the uh, early 20th century. Um, and the question was, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, famous writer and uh, Christian theologian, he responds with two words, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. If we could take that as our starting point, I am what's wrong with the world. Not um, politicians or governments, not the greedy and the rich, not a lack of education. Um, rather than looking at uh, the problem as outside of ourselves, if we did see ourselves as part of humanity and therefore part of the problem, and even more so for the Christian who believes that we are created with purpose and intention, entrusted with the care of the world, then, yeah, we might be able to start with um, I am as the problem. Uh, I am as the answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And if we did start there, then a follow-up question might be, well, how can I be made right? How can I be made good if I'm what's wrong? And of course, many hands are raised now, and um, uh, yes, you're right, Jesus is the answer, um, good Sunday school answer. But I think as I ask a secondary question in just a moment, we'll see that we just need to go a little bit deeper, not beyond Jesus, just deeper into understanding what we mean when we say Jesus is the answer. Uh, Jesus is most certainly the answer, but there's a more pointed question than how can I be good? And it actually comes out of our text. And I'll share it with you in just a moment. But So who's Paul writing to? He's writing to Titus, whom he refers to as um, his true son in the faith. Um, he uses that same title for Timothy. And so the letters to Timothy and the letters to Titus are called the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. And Paul is writing to pastors. He's writing to these pastors, um, Timothy in Ephesus, and uh, Titus has been left in Crete to set up and establish churches in Crete an island part of Greece. And um, Cretan society um, uh, has, I, I guess, has a particular image about it. In fact, Paul uses um, one of their own, uh, he says prophets here, but almost like one of their own philosophers uh, to describe Crete and the place uh, where uh, Titus has been left to set up these churches. And he says, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So he quotes one of their own philosophers saying this about Cretan society. And so Paul's writing to Titus and encouraging him um, as, as he's in this society. And, he, uh, and, and like in many of uh, Paul's letters, there's always the issue of false teachers, people coming in and claiming to speak on behalf of God, and yet their lives sometimes, or their actions, or their motivations, are not congruent with the ways of God. And so in this letter, you'll hear words like good and godliness. 
they'll appear. If you read the whole letter in a, in a sitting, you'll read words like good and godliness or godly. And, and what's the connection between these words, good and godly, apart from uh, one having one extra letter? What's the connection? You might remember the story of a young man running up to Jesus and saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus may as well have been saying, are you calling me God? Um, no one is good except God alone. So here's God and he's good. He's the standard of what's really good and here's me. So the question remains, how can I be good? And you're right, the answer is Jesus. So at the moment that I reject and turn away from my life, living it my way, recognising that God is the one uh, who, who leads, who guides, who, whose way of life is the true way of life. And that as I turn away from my life and, 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 and turn to Christ, come to God through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, and my sins are forgiven, and I'm made one with God. So here's God, here's good, here's me, and here's me now united with God. I've been made good. And so in Titus 2.14, um, from our reading today, it says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so Andrew spoke about it last week, that it's, it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself, purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So God has made me good. Yes, and yet Andrew last week spoke about how God has done something and yet there's our response to what God has done. And somehow as these two come together, this synergy is, is an aspect and, and, a, and a part of, of how we understand salvation. Uh, that salvation is always spoken about as a past, a present, and a future reality. That uh, the past reality, as we read in our reading actually, for God has appeared. Jesus came. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. We have forgiveness of sins and we can be made one with God as we turn to him and trust in him. But then our text also says that now, in this present age, we can say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and yes, to a self-controlled and godly life. That's the working out of salvation. That is salvation in the present tense. So Jesus has done something, it is finished. We, in response to what God is doing, um, we participate with him, and this is the present reality of salvation, as we look forward and wait to his appearing. Again from our text, we wait for his second coming where salvation will be fulfilled, no more suffering, no more sin, and salvation will be fulfilled. There's a past, there's a present reality, and there's a future reality. And Paul is focusing on this present reality, this synergy between what God is doing in us and, and our response to that and participating with God in that. And here's the second question. So if the first question was, how can I be good? The more pointed question coming from our text is how can I be motivated and eager to do what is good? Because that's what the text said. It said that Jesus purified for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So the question isn't how can I be good? The question is how can I be motivated and eager to do what is good? How are we going in this present time? 
in isolation, in lockdown. Times are tough and they're challenging in so many different ways. There are dis disappointments and griefs. Uh, there are great challenges in so many different ways. How can I ask that question? How can we be motivated and eager to do what is good? And yet it comes from the text. It comes from God's word. And I think it's when we ask that question, we have to press a little bit deeper than just saying Jesus. How can I be motivated? Yes, it is Jesus. But let's understand what that means. Paul gives us two reasons for being motivated and eager uh, to do what is good. He says, firstly, it's a fitting response to God's salvation, his love and his grace. So he says, so at the beginning of chapter 2, which wasn't part of our reading, but at the beginning of chapter 2, as you read down in that chapter, um, Paul's instructing uh, the community of faith particularly. In chapter 3, he'll talk about uh, our relating to the wider community. But in chapter 2, he's talking about the relationships and the roles within the community of faith and how we should conduct ourselves in godly ways, in, in good ways, in our conduct, in our character. And so he talks to the older men and the older women. He talks to the younger men and the younger women. He talks to slaves. And in those instructions, straight after that comes our text today. And so um, the beginning of that text says, for the grace of God has appeared. So when it says for, it means that's the reason. The reason why you would behave in all these good and godly ways in your roles and in your conduct and in your relationships with each other is for the grace of God. God's love for you. God's sacrifice of himself to make you one with him. This is to be celebrated. This is to be... Uh, Rejoice to the, it's out of our gratitude that we are motivated and eager to do good works. That's his first reason. His second reason for being motivated and eager is for the sake of those who don't know God. And so in the verses that precede our text, as he's giving those instructions to those different groups of people within the community of faith, embedded in that are the reasons for why um, uh, they should behave this way. So in verse two, verse uh, sorry, in verse five of chapter two, it says so that no one will malign the word of God. So as he's giving these instructions of why to behave this way, he says, so that no one will malign the word of God. No one will disparage the word of God. That here's the word of God, and here's how we behave. They're congruent. They go together. If we're behaving in ways that are inconsistent with what God teaches, then people won't take seriously God's word. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So there will be people who will oppose us for all manner of reasons. But when they look at us, it's like they've got nothing. They can't find anything about our conduct and behaviour. In fact, our conduct and behaviour is, is, is attractive. <laughs> and so it, it says that they might be ashamed. There's almost like a conviction, something inside of them. They, they do oppose us, and yet at the same time they feel convicted as they oppose us because of our behaviour and conduct. And then in verse 10, which I think sums it up well, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. So that as he's giving all these instructions of how to behave, he's saying, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. So that people look at us, those that don't know God, look at the Christian community, look at Christians and say they have something that's, that's, that's worth having. There's something real, there's a joy, there's a flourishing and a blessedness about their life. 
that I want. And so Paul's two reasons for um, being eager and motivated is one, out of our own gratitude, out of our own joy, at our salvation of what God has done, his grace. And the second reason is for, for the sake of those that don't know God. This is why we should be eager and motivated. But saying this is usually never enough. Saying that because of the good news, we should be eager and motivated is never enough. We have to learn how to meditate and and celebrate and cherish the reality of the new creation. Even apart from the new creation, every human being is to be celebrated. It's why we have birthdays. When you go to a birthday party, you could go out of obligation. Um, I've got a cupcake here to celebrate. Or you could go to the party genuinely desiring to enter into the celebration. Not to enjoy the food for the food's sake, but you're celebrating that person. You're valuing them, you're cherishing them, you're appreciating them. There's a celebrating and a cherishing that's a work. It doesn't happen by accident. If you're in a marriage relation, it doesn't happen by accident that you cherish and celebrate that person on a daily basis if you can look at them and remember why you value them, why you appreciate them. If you can find ways of meditating on that. The psalmist in Psalm 139 verse 14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You see, this isn't simply some egotistical, individualistic, look at me, celebrate me. This is actually an appropriate and right way of worshipping. That I say, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm acknowledging God's good work. Part of God's good work is me. Part of God's good work is you. And when I do that, I I affirm God's good work. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I have um, also here um, a zero birthday candle. Um, I'm not sure when you could ever stick that in and, and, and actually make that celebration. Like, I mean, could you do it at the birth of a child? But, but the seconds and the minutes and the hours, they're, they're always moving. And so it's like you stick that in and it's already passed. The zero's passed. Could you ever celebrate a person <laughs> before they're born? Uh, would, the, would the zero be conception? Let's, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> what, what is the zero? Could you ever celebrate somebody at zero? Well. I, I think you can. I think the rebirth that a Christian has is something that we we, we could celebrate um, uh, in time. That is, we could celebrate somebody's baptism. Uh, we pull out the boys' baptismal candles um, on the day of their baptism and we light it and we remind them what their baptism is. Well, you could celebrate baptism, but, but do you know that your rebirth, your union... Your renewal, your being made right and good, was celebrated by God even before you were born. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, it says, For he chose us in him, for God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, 
in accordance with his pleasure and will. In accordance with his pleasure, he celebrates the new creation. He celebrated you before you were born. God celebrates you. He made you on purpose. He made you for this time. He knew. He looked at the world. He saw what was wrong with it and he placed you in it. Exactly where he wanted you to be, exactly how he wanted you to be, in exactly the time and in exactly the place that he wanted you to wanted you to flourish for the the purposes of his renewal in you and through you. He celebrated you. Let me just wrap this up again with a verse from Ephesians, which connects directly to our verse from Titus. Uh, our verse from Titus was that Jesus purified himself for a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to the connection. Or listen to how it resonates. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. You see, our eagerness um, to do what is good can only flourish from this place of celebrating and cherishing. Do you understand what I'm saying? That that your eagerness can only flourish, you can only be eager and motivated to do what is good if you understand what it is to celebrate and cherish this union, this new creation, what you are, who you are, who God has created you to be. Because you will face sorrow, you will face rejection, you will face disappointment and loss. There will be all these things that will stop you from being eager and motivated. You, You will attempt to do good works, but you being motivated and eager to do them will be all swallowed up by the disappointments and struggles as you mourn with those who mourn, as you face your own disappointments and struggles and rejections. All of that will swallow up your eagerness to do what is good, unless you can learn to cherish and celebrate the new creation. If you Google searched um, who I am in Christ, um, uh, who I am in Christ list, and clicked on images, you'll get all these people that have compiled all these verses of scripture that talk about who you are in Christ. And if you took just one of those verses, I've been doing this with our boys recently, just taking one of those verses and meditating on that one verse. What does it mean that that the Bible talks about us as being a child of God? What does it mean that you are Jesus' friend? What does it mean that you belong to God? What does it mean that there is now no condemnation in Christ? If you meditated on just one of those a day, you would start to cherish and celebrate the new creation, who you are in Christ. And this will, will, uh, this will bring a, f- uh, a flourishing in your eagerness and desire to do what is good. Dig in. Celebrate. Enjoy. Cherish who you are in Christ. May God bless you with knowledge and insight into who you are in Christ so that you may be eager to do what is good. Amen.